If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 5. This is the very final passage in 1 Peter that we are going to be looking at. We're wrapping up this series. It has been a, a marvelous time together. I, I love the writings of Peter. I've had a number of different opportunities to go through this, the, both of his letters at different times in different ways, and uh, it has just been very rich to, uh, to look deeply into what he was writing to people who were going through very difficult times, um, who, who were experiencing suffering and persecution on, on a much greater level than what we would know today, but also on a level that, that as we look at the world, the, the direction that our culture is going, the direction that our world is going, we are seeing more and more followers of Jesus facing this kind of suffering. And the anticipation is, the expectation is, is what we've read here in Peter is that is our calling. For those that are followers of Christ, we are called to suffer. That we can expect hardship. That we can expect opposition um, to the things that we hold Dear, the whole thing, the things that we, uh, that we trust that God has said. And so the words that we have been looking at, the, the messages that Peter has been writing to, uh, to the, uh, to the uh, believers here in this letter fit very much for our lives. And we see that the Holy Spirit is working in our hearts, preparing us for those challenges that we are going to be facing. And so, here in this last uh, chapter of, of this first letter of Peter, chapter 5, uh, Peter is closing off his letter and in some ways wrapping up all of the things that he has said here in this letter. And we're going to read uh, just the last couple of verses from uh, chapter, 12, uh, chapter 5, verse 12 to 14. Before we do that, let's just have a quick word of prayer. Holy Spirit, we ask for your leading here this morning. We believe that you were speaking through Peter as he wrote this letter. That there was a message that you had intended for those people that originally received this letter, but that there is also a message that you have intended for us today. And so just as you have faithfully transmitted that message through your servant, Peter, would you work in our hearts today? Would you strip away those things that would distract us, that would, that would discourage us, that would, would blind us, deafen us to what it is that you are saying? Lord, our hearts lay bare before you this morning, anticipating your redemptive work within us. We put ourselves in your hands 
here this morning to be taught by you. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 12, by Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Just few short words, and yet so many things that he is saying there. There are a number of different tangents that we could take off of all of these things that he is uh, just referencing quickly here in the last bit of his letter. Um, I'm going to touch on a few of them, but then want to get to the heart of what I think he's trying to say. He says that it's through Sylvanus that he was able to write this letter. Um, For those of you that are familiar with church history, uh, we understand that Sylvanus is another name for Silas. And it is a church tradition that that this Sylvanus is uh, the same one that traveled with Paul in his missionary journeys in, 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 in Asia Minor and, and in Europe, uh, establishing churches there with Paul. Paul refers to him a number of times with that same name, Silvanus. And so we, we recognize that, that it was through Silvanus, through his uh, uh, writing, that, that Peter was dictating this letter. And Silvanus Silas was there faithfully jotting down the words of Peter as he was uh, uh, speaking that out to him. It also helps us understand a little bit, for those of you that might have a little bit more uh, uh, study in, in, uh, in, in Scripture, you'll know that, that there is a, a distinct difference between the the first letter of Peter and the second letter of Peter. The first letter that we have just completed our study in has a very high academic level of Greek. The grammar is perfect. The vocabulary is broad. You get to second Peter and suddenly the grammar is much rougher. The vocabulary somewhat shortened, somewhat uh, smaller. And there are some that would then say, obviously Peter didn't write both of these letters. And to some extent that's true. The explanation comes here in this verse that it was Silas, a a Greek man, a Roman man by birth, who was was a, a natural Greek speaker, was able to translate, was able to take the words of Peter, a Hebrew fisherman, who spoke Aramaic most of his life and probably was only learning Greek towards the latter part of his life. And so Silvanus was able to help Peter write these words in a, in, a, in a language that would be able to reach out to the masses, 
Koine Greek was the, the language of the Roman Empire. And so wherever you went, if you spoke Koine, Koine Greek, you would be able to do business, you would be able to interact with people. It was the language, the common language of the people. And so uh, that's why the New Testament uh, almost exclusively is written in Koine Greek so that it could get out to as many people in the Roman Empire as possible. And Peter likely used the expertise of Silas to help him write this letter. But when it came to the second letter, he didn't have that help anymore. Silas was off someplace else. Uh, we, church tradition says that he became a bishop in the town of Thessalonica. And so perhaps he was already there and Peter didn't have access to uh, to somebody who could dictate. And so the Greek, the grammar, the vocabulary is very different. So this little passage helps give us a little bit of understanding of, of uh, some of the, the realities that were there, the differences that there are between these two letters. He also refers to Mark, my son. And again, as church tradition teaches us, this is the very same Mark who wrote down the Gospel of Mark. That it was as he lived his life, as he had an opportunity to become a disciple of Peter's, that he sat at Peter's feet as Peter would uh, tell stories of Jesus, would recount all of his experiences as a, as a disciple of Jesus. And Mark was there soaking all of that up. And as Peter came to the end of his life, and perhaps even after Peter was martyred, Mark realized the importance of, of recording that experience. And so he wrote the Gospel of Mark. And so we're actually, that's going to be our next sermon series that we're going to be working through. Starting next week, uh, we are going to be going through the Gospel of Mark. And so we see this connection and uh and the the uh the intimacy that that peter and mark had where he called him his son gives us confidence when we read through the gospel of mark that these indeed are faithful accurate accounts of the life of jesus his ministry we also see this interesting statement she who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. Babylon was code word for Rome. Because, again, we are talking about a people who were uh, under persecution, who were being attacked for their faith in Jesus Christ by the Roman culture, by the Roman government. It was... Uh, it was dangerous for people to, to be recognized, to be identified as a follower of Christ in many places throughout the Roman Empire, especially in the heart in the city of Rome itself. And so often when you read uh, different parts of Scripture, uh, there will be a reference in the New Testament to Babylon. Uh, for sure in Revelation, there's a number of places, uh, especially in uh, Revelation 17, uh, that talks about Babylon. 
And for, for a persecuted people who were trying to identify a particular place without actually saying the name of that place and exposing the people that might be there into any kind of a dangerous position, Babylon was the code word in Christianity for the city of Rome. And so, so we know that Peter was there in Rome. That, that he was uh, uh, ministering in the churches that were meeting there in Rome and, and, and proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. And so he was sending greetings from the church that he was a part of there in Rome to uh, the, the churches that he was writing to in the number of different provinces of Asia Minor. And so they send their greetings as well. And then there is that phrase that, I don't know, makes us Canadians and Americans a little bit uncomfortable. That we are to greet in one another with the kiss of love. There are places in the world where that is a very familiar kind of a greeting that you kiss one another when you say hi. Doesn't necessarily fit with us very well. What is Peter trying to say here? We're not going to go into great deal. To, we, could, we could really un, un, unpeel all of the, the details about, about this, but, but it fits with the, the things that Peter has been talking about, this, the importance of brotherly love within the church. Oh, we need each other. And not just to sit beside one another on a Sunday morning to have our, our, our eyes focused on those that are leading the singing and those that are preaching and things like that. But that we are vulnerably intimate with one another. That we are sharing deeply with one another. That there is a love for one another that, that puts ourselves at risk that puts us in a place of self-sacrifice so that we can serve the needs of those that we love, that we, that we minister with, that we rub shoulders with. There is an importance of us having deep, intimate relationships with one another. And throughout his letter, uh, Peter has been talking about uh, brotherly love, the importance of brotherly love, that, that we need to make all effort to extend brotherly love to one another, to support, to encourage, uh, to, to stand with one another. And it makes sense for a community of believers who were being more and more ostracized from the community around them, that were getting kicked out of their, uh, their guilds, their, their careers. They were no longer able to, to make money through their, uh, their careers because their guild was all dedicated to a particular God and, and required them to make sacrifices to that God. And as followers of Jesus, they said, we can't. So they were excluded. For a group of believers that, uh, that more and more were getting excluded from their families that no longer had the, the support of their husband or their father or mother or their children because of their faith in Christ. Again, uh, the household was centered around a, a shrine of, of gods that the family would make offerings to on a regular basis. 
And for those that became followers of Jesus, they were unable to make those sacrifices. And so they were being ostracized. They were being kicked out of their families. And this community was being excluded from from society, from, from government, from all different areas. And they needed one another. They were dependent on one another. And so this emphasis on the importance of brotherly love, that your connection together is not just a casual acquaintance, but that there is deep, intimate vulnerability with one another, that we share deeply, that we bear one another's burdens. We come alongside one another and encourage and support one another. So when he says, greet one another with a kiss of love, Paul, in a number of his letters, says that that we should greet one another with, with a holy kiss. It's about that kind of deep intimacy, authenticity, openness, vulnerability with one another. That our relationships go deeper than just talking about the weather, talking about business and complaining about the government but that we share deeply with one another. That brings us to what I think is the the heart of this passage. I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. What is he referring to? This is the true grace of God. I think there's two potential uh, meanings or or, or things that he is referring to. I I don't see them as mutually exclusive. Um, I think it would be entirely right for us to read that and understand that he was talking about his entire letter. That in, in all the things that he has written, this is the true grace of God. And that totally fits for, uh, for the, the context and everything else. Uh, but I think, and again, this isn't, they aren't mutually exclusive or contradictory, but I think specifically what he is referring to and, and the context leads us to that is just the previous verses when he talks about In verse 10, the God of all grace who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To Him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. And that's what we were talking about Last week. It is the true grace of God is that He does the work in our hearts. That He's the one who is sacrificed to cleanse us from our sins. 
That it's not because, again, as we talked about in preparation for communion, it's not because of the things that we have done or our ability to be able to follow along particular uh, moral guidelines or laws or rituals or, or achieve any uh, particular level of enlightenment through meditation or anything like that. It's not because of what we have done. But our redemption is all due to the work of God. This is the true grace. But not only, not only is it our rescue from sin that is true grace, that is the result of what God is doing in us, but it is also our preservation as followers of Jesus. It is also in our day-to-day living being able to to represent Christ to a world that is destined for destruction. It is in our ability to be able to to live a life that reflects the character of God, that, that lives out the fruits of the Spirit. That that as well is the work of God. That He is the one who confirms. He is the one who establishes us. He is the one who will strengthen us in order to be able to follow through with His plans and His purposes in our lives. This is the true grace of God. And this is so important for Peter to be able to to point us to. Because it is our human our human sinfulness that time and time again tries to find something that we can do, that we can feel in control over, that we have power. Right from the very beginning, we see Adam and Eve sin before God. What was the sin? That they ate of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. That they thought that they could determine for themselves what was right and what was wrong. That it wasn't, they didn't have to depend on God anymore. They could stand in their own strength. And in the midst of that rebellion, how great was that fall. But God in His mercy covered their shame, even though they tried feebly to cover themselves with leaves and and other kinds of foliage to keep their shame hidden from those around them, to be ultimately to be hidden from themselves. So they didn't have to look upon their own shame and could kind of fool themselves that they were good enough. God in His mercy sacrificed an animal and gave them skins. He clothed and covered their shame through that sacrifice. And that became, from that point on, a a means for people to be able to, to give their faith in the grace of God. That He would be the one that would cover their shame because they knew that their attempts were were ineffective, were not enough, could never accomplish it. And right away we see in the next story 
their sons, Cain and Abel, who are continuing that practice of, of sacrifices, bringing sacrifices to God to acknowledge, to, to acknowledge their allegiance, their worship of God. But one son brings a sacrifice that God deems worthy. The other son, God rejected. Why? Because Cain was doing it in his own strength. It wasn't anymore that he was trusting in the grace of God to cover it his shame. Instead, he was trusting in his sacrifice, his willingness to bring this sacrifice before God that he felt, now I deserve to be covered. Now I don't need to worry about my shame. And again, how great was that fall. And time went on, and we see God in many different ways extending opportunities for His grace to be, to be experienced in the lives of humanity. His covering of their shame. And even in that very first moment, in that first moment of the fall, He gives a hint, He gives a prophecy that it will be through the seed of the woman that sin will be crushed. And God, over time, continued to give that promise, build on that promise, and help people understand that it is only through their trust in His grace that they would be set free, that, that one day He would send a Messiah, one who would take on that penalty. He would be the perfect sacrifice. That you wouldn't any, any longer need to, to have your shame be covered by the sacrifice of animals, but it would be that that sacrifice was representing what the Messiah would do on our behalf. And through the patriarchs, and through Moses, God set up this system of sacrifice where, where everything was symbolizing the hope of what Messiah would do and, and the grace of God that would, be, that would be evident, would be effective in their lives today because of what that Messiah would do. And they were putting their trust in the grace of God that it would be His work on their behalf. And yet every time, with all of the wonder that God had put into the sacrificial system, into the temple, all of the imagery that He put there that was there to remind them of Messiah. They took that, that which was beautiful, that which was good, and they twisted it and distorted it to think that now that I've done all of these steps, now I'm done. Now I've, I'm in control. I've been able to cleanse myself because I sacrificed the lamb. I, I did all of these other things. Instead of it being an exercise in, in, in trust in the grace of God, it became an exercise of my own righteousness, my own religiosity. And how great was that fall. Until God fulfilled His promise. 
And the Messiah came and was born there in a manger. That he took on, God himself took on our flesh, our frailty. And lived his life and, and revealed to us what it meant to be a follower of God, to be in relationship with God. That he was faithful right up to the moment of his death. And willingly allowed himself to be sacrificed on our behalf. So that once and for all, our shame would be covered. Our sin would be dealt with. And as we read there from Ephesians, from the words of Paul, that it was by grace that you have been saved. And that not of yourselves. It is the gift of of God. This is true grace. And the church was established. And the Holy Spirit came in power into the lives of the followers of Jesus, into the apostles and of the disciples and all of those. And as we read through Acts and we see the amazing work of God through that group of people, we're just in awe of the wonder of it all. And yet, it didn't take very long for humans then to try and once again grab a hold of control. To say that it's because of what I have done that I'm saved. One of the very earliest of the false teachers that we read about here that actually was happening in the time of the apostles, in the time of the very earliest of the churches. There were those that we now call Judaizers who said, well, yes, yes, we are dependent on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, on the sacrifice of the Messiah to pay the penalty for our sin. But if that's going to last... We have to do it ourselves. We have to follow these laws. We have to go through these particular regulations and rituals. We need to observe these particular days in order for us to then earn the right to receive that glory at the end. We just never learn. Our human sinfulness doesn't allow us to trust completely in the grace of God. To stand in that and not in our own worth and our own value. I want to read you some words that Paul wrote. And why don't you turn with me to Galatians chapter 3. These are, by the way, remember, Galatia was one of the provinces to which Peter was writing his letter. And now Paul is also writing a letter to the province, the churches in the province 
of Galatia. So these are the same people that are receiving this letter. Oh, foolish Galatians. Paul is always so gentle and careful when he chooses his words. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Did I say this is Galatians chapter 3? If anybody's trying to search Galatians chapter 3, verse 1. Who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? What he's asking is, did you receive your salvation by the things that you did or by putting your faith in what Jesus did for you? A rhetorical question. The answer very clearly. It's by faith in what Jesus has done for us. That the Holy Spirit was working in our hearts and regenerated our lives, transformed us so that we are in the image of Christ, that we are no longer bound by sin, and we've been set free from the guilt and shame of our rebellion against God. He goes on. Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing? with faith. Just as Abraham believed and it was counted him as righteousness. The problem was these Galatians were falling again for that same old pattern. Saying that, that yes, I, I trust in Christ to save me, but I now need to work really hard in order to make sure that I stay saved. Paul is saying, you're missing the whole point. Just as much as we depended on the grace of God to rescue us, we also have to trust in the grace of God to preserve us. That every moment that we live, we walk in Him. Oh, if only we had learned our lesson. And yet today, we look around at church traditions, at, at different organizations, different individuals, and what do we see? Yeah, maybe you are saved through Jesus. But if you're going to stay saved, you can't smoke, you can't drink, you can't dance, you can't play cards, you can't go to movies. Or maybe they have another tradition where it says that you have to go through these particular rituals and regulations 
in order for you to make sure that you will be there at the time when the, Christ, when the trumpet sounds and you return. That it will be because of your ability to be able to follow these regulations, to, to uh, consistently uh, go through these different rituals that are out there that we as an organization have determined that these are the things that will preserve you in order for you to stay safe. How great is that fall? Peter says, This is the true grace of God. God's unmerited favor. Unmerited meaning there's nothing you can do to earn it. There's nothing that you can do to secure it. There's nothing that you can do to maintain it. All because of what He has done for you. This is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it and nothing else. And that's how we come to the very last statement, the words that He closes us off with. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Because in the true grace of God, we can rest. And the work is done. His Holy Spirit works in us and is transforming us so that we can walk in a way that's worthy of the calling, not because of what we have done, but because of what He is doing in us. And so peace. Rest in the completed work of God. Let's pray. I just want you in the the quietness of your heart right now I'm just going to ask you to to open up your heart to the Holy Spirit I know that all of us have that human nature tendency to want to grab control to be able to do something to earn our place before God. Let me just encourage you to to invite the Holy Spirit to put His finger on that part in your life where you are holding fast. You're following rituals or or a, a moral moral guideline or a, 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 a list of laws. And let me invite you to 
to stand in the grace of God and let all of that go. Confess that sin, put it aside, and stand firm in the grace of Jesus. Sweet Jesus, your grace is enough. It's all that we need. You know our tendency to try and find some way that we can be responsible. Help us to stand in the true grace of God. Help us to rest in your completed work. Let me just go on to invite you. If if you have never received that grace for yourself, would you talk with somebody today? Would you ask them what it means to trust in Jesus for your salvation? To trust in Jesus for your moment-by-moment, day-to-day living? You can come talk to me. There's others here maybe that you are more comfortable with talking. Don't leave here today without experiencing that peace and rest for yourself by trusting in the grace, putting your faith in the grace, the true grace of God. Lord, I pray for us here today. I pray that you would that you would teach us to stand firm in your grace. Show us those places where we try to take control ourselves. Help us to put that aside. To be able to live life every moment recognizing your leading, your voice, your empowering, your strengthening, your establishing, and your confirming of us. And to rest in that. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.